Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have East Coast Mike and West Coast Mike. Thanks for being on the show. Very good to be here, Gary. We appreciate having you uh, invite us to be on. And my listeners are wondering why I have two people named Mike on my show. It is because (laughs) they've written a book called Why Do People Act That Way? And what can I do about it? Very interesting topic. So um, what is the premise of the book? The struggle that we had, Mike and West Coast Mike and I have worked together for about 35 years. And we've done everything from run a national youth program to deal with individual situations. We train in many different situations. And as we work with people, we found that the the common uh, clinical psychological models that is frequently used in counseling and in teaching actually don't work with real people most of the time. The (laughs) clinical model, which is really good in clinical Uh situations, gives a, a, a person gives symptoms or you do some testing and then you come up with a diagnosis, which may be right, it may be partly right, it may be completely wrong. Then there are some therapies that apply to those diagnoses, and then you work those therapies, and they either work or they don't work, and you give a prognosis for how it's going to work out in the end, and you kind of watch, see what happens. What we found in business, in families, in churches, in uh, colleges, any kind of situation which we've done training, we found that what people really want to do is just talk about how they feel, what they perceive, um, what, what they want to do or not do. And, and that's kind of messy, if you will. Mm-hmm. So as we work to try and give people some language and some skills by which they could unravel what really has become tangled or, or too knotted to really work with, uh, we came up with the idea, I, part of my research, and then Mike accentuated that, that there were five emotional systems not hundreds and hundreds of emotions, just five. And that gave us uh, a simpler format by which we could talk about very potent situations, uh, very strong reactions, and have a handle kind of a step ahead or even two steps ahead of what was going on around us. As we worked together, we developed a stronger sense of how motivation works coming out of our feelings and emotions, and then into behavior. So we developed a, a working concept, a matrix of PEMB, perceptions, emotions, motivations, and behaviors that become interactive. And Mike can explain a little bit more about that jump in, Mike. Well, I think that one of the things that we realized, uh, Gary, was that, you know, Mike is absolutely right. There's a there's a, a a good place for therapy. There's a good place for clinical kind of work. But the vast majority of people, and I think many times, even in in the therapy clinical world, uh, a lot of those folks would be willing to say, you know, people need just some basic tools 
to navigate life, they, they don't have those tools. And they don't even know how to begin to describe them. And it's not that there's necessarily neuroses that are going on or that kind of stuff, but just very much facilitating an understanding of how life works. And so we, you know, we developed this PEMB model to help people get, um, to be able to get some structure to their thinking. And, and once you get, uh, you know, you understand the dynamics a little bit of what's going on around you, then you can start dealing with uh, real emotions. One of the things that we talk about consistently in our world uh, that we believe to be, we believe strongly is that emotions in of themselves are neutral. There is not uh, there is not a, a good or a bad emotion, if you will. Now, the, the real issue begins to, uh, why we say what we say in, in the title of the book, where the real issue is, what do you do with that? How is it affecting me, and what am I going to do with it? It's in the doing of it that, uh, that really starts defining the positive, negative, if you will, aspect of what goes on there. But to say that... For example, let's, let's just, just give a very simple one. Um, let's say um, fear. Uh, we, would, you know, we would say if you are terrified of something, um, that's, that is a bad emotion. Well, no, we're saying that being terrified is not a bad emotion. It's not positive or negative in the sense that as an emotion, it is an emotion mm -hmm. that's neutral. Now, can it be negative? Sure. If what you do with it can be negative. If you have uh, terror because you are afraid of the monsters under your bed and you know, you can't get out of, you can't get out of bed at night when you need to use the restroom. Um, that's an unrational, we would say that's an unrational fear, that's terror that doesn't really exist. That's not necessarily a positive thing. But if you are walking down the trail in the middle of, uh, up here in the great Pacific Northwest, you're headed to the enchantments and you're lumbering along and all of a sudden you stumble upon a big uh, mama black bear with two cubs and she now is standing on her hind legs. And wouldn't you want to have terror take effect right then? You bet you would. Because what's that going to do? It's going to be the flight or fright thing, fight thing that goes on. And terror is a good thing at that point because you want to get out of there. That's so, a good illustration. Let me jump in, Mike. That's a good yeah, illustration no. because the idea of fear or anger or sadness or grief, those are often seen as bad emotions. When I was doing my doctoral studies, I actually got a book called The Bad Emotions, and it included those three along with a couple of others. And the idea, the premise of, of that concept, which we've heard many times, is that certain emotions are bad in and of themselves, to be avoided in every way. One of the realities of fear is that at times, people do not have enough fear 
to regulate their behavior in a situation that really does have risk or great danger to them. And, and so the fear that is minimized is bad because it is not equipping the person to build reasonable safety or security or to act in such a way as to ensure their safety. The minimizing of the fear is the problem. Or, as Mike referred to, the maximizing of fear to terror over things that really are not putting you in danger, that's also a problem. So the issue of fear itself is neither good nor bad. It just is. It's a response to our perceptions. And the question then is, uh, when, we, when we experience fear from our perceptions, is it the right amount of fear that gives us cause to build safety, security, reduce our danger, increase our strength? And then the outcome, what does the fear do to me and what do I do with it now become very valid questions. The same thing is true about anger, hate. A lot of people have said to they say frequently, my mother told me never hate. So I try to keep all my anger in check. When I feel it starting, I just push it back down. So now you have a great set of questions. What's this doing to you? And what do you do with it? Gives us a lot of opportunity both to discuss and to teach a different way. How about like if a person has like an irrational fear? Like how about like, like people who are like afraid of what people think of them? Like a, it's like a fear that doesn't really make sense. For the person who is struggling with a fear that they cannot resolve, our goal is not to repress or eliminate emotions or motivations or behavior. It's not at all. It is to resolve them in a very healthy and appropriate way. So when a, an individual, let's say a business owner, is really struggling with uh, their employee the set of employees they have, and the business owner is making decisions based on a need to please their their work staff in an inordinate way. It's a very unhealthy uh, work environment. It sounds like, oh my goodness, he's giving gifts and he's spending money and he's doing all these things because he's so afraid people won't like him or her. The reality is that that perception is so innately unhealthy because it's based on perceptions that aren't accurate. We, we believe that there are 10 senses of perception, not just five. You're taught in elementary school about five emotions, yes. sight, hearing, taste, smell, and touch. But we also add to that uh, vestibular balance, proprioceptive place in space, uh, memory, creativity or imagination, and the psyche or the soul. So when a person has back deep into their childhood memories of being teased and mocked and, and tormented by siblings or parents or somebody else, that now, that memory, that perception can actually alter the way in which they're responding to people currently. What we do is go back in and look at those ancient memories or even their imaginations 
and begin to unravel them in the same way we would if they keep seeing cockroaches run across their kitchen table that really are not there or hearing sounds of ticking clocks that actually aren't there. We could speculate that that's from a neurosis or even a psychosis. Uh -huh. That is not how the human brain works. The human brain is incredibly uh, fascinating for how do we perceive, but one set of perceptions can be things that we imagine or remember from our place in that circumstance before. So instead of saying, just stop it, stop being angry, we investigate where's the anger coming from? What do you need to change? What is it that you feel powerless in the face of? Let's name that. Let's begin putting substance to it and figuring out ways in which we can answer what is happening in your understanding, what's happening for you, and what do you do with it? So it, it sounds complicated, but it's actually simple. And in some ways, it sounds very, very simple, but it's really complex. It's mm -hmm. both at the same time. Um, so once you identify like the perception or perceptions that are um, being affected um, by you know, some kind of disturbance, where do you go from there? I think a lot of that has to do with you, where you go from there is to help people to begin to understand uh, really what's, what's driving certain aspects of their life. Uh, and they have, they really don't even under, they don't even, they don't know it. And so what we're trying to do is give some framework to that. So if we talk about perceptions is where we begin, the perceptions then impact emotions and they inter, they interact with each other. So when you look at the the model of which we've built, which we call <clears throat> our PEMB model, that are four heads that intersect on the front of the book. And in the very middle of that uh, model is, it's like a Venn diagram. There's this little triangle with a question mark in it. And we did that on purpose because that is what we say, okay, that is where reality is. But all of these intersect and they interact with each other, so they don't stand exclusively, mutually exclusive uh, in of themselves. But if you don't, if, if, there's, if there's a sense of which you don't understand, for example, in perceptions, <clears throat> let, me, let me give you a, 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 a very simple illustration. So uh, smell, we'll just use a, one that we all know, okay, instead of trying to describe the ones that we've added to it. The, the sense of smell. Um, it, it, most people don't know this, but the olfactory sense of, of smell is the most powerful perception we have. It, it, it has the ability to trigger multiple other kinds of perceptions within that by the olfactory, the smell itself. It, it, it has, I mean, it says like over, you can, you, det you can detect with your nose, um, the latest research, I think, is like over a trillion different kinds of smells, which is amazing. Far more than the eye and far more than the ear, the hearing and, and seeing, which is, is, is amazing. So you're a person that has a very heightened sense of, of, uh, of smell. You can walk into a room and uh, you can tell 
uh, a person who's, you know, uh, put one little spritz of cologne on that morning, it is overpowering to you. Or if there are multiple people with different kinds of clones in the room, you can actually, you can actually figure out which is which, which is whom. And at the same time, it becomes totally distracting to you. And so you're sitting in this meeting in the conference room with all your colleagues. Someone has overdone the cologne. You are so distracted by the smell in the room. Now, what's it doing to you and what are you going to do about it? Well, what's it doing to you is now you are becoming what? You're becoming frustrated. You're becoming Mm -hmm. angry. You're becoming that is all the intensity is climbing up the scale and what we would see as the empowerment scale to the point of where you just can't believe how rude these people are that would do this. And these are folks who have just put one little dab of cologne on or a perfume on, <clears throat> but they have no concept because their, their sense of perception and smell is, is very low. So, so uh, take that illustration. Let me jump in. So sure. you take that illustration and in a, you're in a professional meeting <clears throat> and one of the people in the room has used a perfume that is very similar to an aunt um, uh, 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 of your family that used to wear either the same or a very similar perfume and was always hugging and kissing and bothering you. So, you, so the person now in their memory from the smell has kind of a troubled edge in the meeting. And so as things are discussed, they change their viewpoint based on that little troubling. Let's take it to something less benign. There's another person or you're in a different situation and somebody is wearing an old spice cologne that was worn by a relative who molested that person when they were a child. Now we're talking about incredible fear. They don't even know where it's coming from. They don't even understand in the moment that that smell is associated with being abused as a child. But in instantly, the individual is extremely anxious, stops listening to the arguments being uh, uh, bantied about in the conversation or is extremely angry or is deeply wounded. Now their smell has triggered their memories, which they may not actually have verbally going on in their mind. It's just there. And that is changing their perceptions of the discussion that's being held by professionals in this particular moment. And their behavior becomes reclusive. They just start backing out when they have really good ideas. Now, everything is interactive. Smell is interactive with memory, with emotion, with behavior. And that's what, so your question was incredibly intuitive, Gary. And that is, how do you begin working with those things? Number one is take ownership of what's happening for you. It's not someone made you. It's someone else's fault. I'm going to throw it over here. I'm going to assign it to that. The first step always is this is mine. I may not like it. I may not know what to do with it. I may be extremely uh, troubled, but I'm going to hold on to this. And if I don't know how to hold it, 
please teach me how to hold very, very difficult issues. And we do a lot of permission giving. We will allow people the struggle. We recognize that that is very real, but we say, we know how to hold on to things that are very difficult. You can learn how to hold on to them too. And if you own them, now you can change them. And that becomes the absolute number one key is personal ownership. Okay. That, and, that and that makes so that, much sense. And then it comes within that concept. Sorry, I didn't even jump in there. But, but that ownership is huge, not victimization, because we're, you know, as I'm sorry, but as a country, we're, we're kind of notorious on this whole thing of I'm just the victim when no ownership and then understanding what this dynamic is in your life. Because then you can start actually doing something with it. But if you keep sloughing it off all the time, and you keep pushing it someplace else, just like Mike said, then you, uh, you're not going to understand. You're not going to understand why this response is happening this way. You, you, you have got to do the hard work, if you will, of being responsible at that level that then as you own that it the understanding falls into place very very quickly one of the challenges we have and we learn it as young children and it's it's uh, endemic in our in our culture is the dangerous phrase you make me or you made me my my dad right. you say it all the time you make me so mad or i get a good grade you make me so proud or my room is a mess. You make me so disgusted. And the, and the reality was that I learned was my father's emotions are in my control. Now, that sounds really abusive. But as a kid, <laughs> as a oh, kid, yeah. I learned which buttons I could push on my dad to get him to fly off the handle. So if he was asking me about where did $20 out of his wallet go, and I knew I could push a button about my messy room, he'd be off to the races about something else. And I learned I can manipulate as easily as I'm manipulated by that kind of phrase. What I found as we counseled and as we work with students and we work with children, we work with adults, people who are dying across the board, business owners, college professors, everybody, as that the phrasing, you make me or you made me, becomes an attempt at manipulating another person. So when even boyfriend and girlfriend, they say, you know, you make me so happy. Well, now my happiness is what you do, and I'm going to be the judge of your behavior relative to my happiness. I'm not happy anymore, and it's because you did something. You make me so angry. Well, the problem now is the ownership has been tied to someone else's behaviors or attitudes or, or process, but I'm holding the strings. And so now it's a marionette show that becomes incredibly dangerous when I'm tied to someone else or when someone is tied to me. What right. we try to do is break as many of those strings as we can by personal ownership. Now that doesn't take away authentic victim status. We right. understand people really have been victimized. They're abused, they're hurt, they're punished. 
It has to do with how that person processes their own wound and whether that's an advantage by being uh, accentuating their victimhood status or they personally want to be able to move in, through, and beyond the, the very things that have victimized them. And that's tough. That is, that is not, we're not talking about something easy. We're talking about something very, very intense. So, so it's like first, like, like, like say you are a victim of, of abuse as a child. And then the first step of saying, you know, okay, I feel this way, you know, and, and kind of like not focus so much on the blame, but first take ownership of the emotion. Sure. And then, so let's, let's take abuse because that, that's extremely prevalent in worldwide culture. It's not just American culture. That is true around the world, all cultures everywhere. So let's take the issue of abuse. A, and I'll speak from personal experience rather than just mere theory. I grew up in a family where my father was an alcoholic. My mother had cancer and died. I watched her die when I was 15. But she, from my middle childhood on was struggling with cancer. My father was a drinker. He was an alcoholic. And my father, by his alcoholism, became really chaotic, meaning I could not predict his behavior and I could not control it. So from my perspective as a child, I never quite knew exactly what was going to happen when my dad pulled in the driveway, started drinking martinis, had a few beers, I don't know. He was a mean drunk as opposed to a funny drunk or a knock, uh, fall down drunk. He was a mean drunk. So he'd pull his belt off. He'd start slapping. He'd throw things around. And eventually he'd go in his room and call it a night at 8 o'clock and the rest of us breathe a sigh of relief. What was interesting is being abused to me, in me, could produce wound that I am hurt. And I still remember the slaps and I still remember the welts and I still remember the pain. It could cause wound. It could cause anger that I'm resentful. I'm mean spirited. I'm, I'm uh, horrible to other people. And I pass the abuse on that I got. It could create in me terror, phobia, that I can't go out. I can't look people in the eye. Um, I'm extremely nervous. My mouth goes dry whenever I'm around a powerful person person, uh, anybody has same color hair as my dad or same size hands, I, I just freak out. It could result in thrill that I love the feeling of being swatted, spanked. The pain creates endorphins and I look for situations that cause me pain, oddly, because it is so satisfying to feel that again. That to me is normal. That sounds really bizarre but that happens. Or that's what it says to me to be family. You don't hit anybody else on the street, but you can hit your own kids. And so when I spank my child or when I uh, am yelled at by my wife, what that says to me is, you know, I'm family. We're, we have a bond. So all five emotions can be engaged by the memory and experience of being victimized. The question then is, did my father make me afraid or make me angry? The answer is, I am angry. I am fearful. I am hurt. I own that. I don't exactly know why, but I'm going to begin unpacking that. And instead of choosing 
that that has destroyed my life, my ownership says I now have a strength that others do not have or that I wouldn't have had had I taken a different course. Nothing I can do about it. That's the course I took. So uh, Mike and I are both ministers. I'm a minister, pastor of a church for 40 years. I have friends who are colleagues who cannot function, that the individual cannot function when a member of their church is in the process of dying. They can't do it. They freak out. They grow dry. They find a reason to go to the bathroom at that moment. They get a cup of coffee. They stand on the other side of the room. They cannot face death. I watched my mother die. I hated that. I hated that moment. But I became the kind of person that embraced the moment. And I can walk, and I've done this about 70 times, walk family members through the death moment in an acceptable, healthy way that does not isolate their family member into the oblivion of a lonely death, but allows them to engage safely because of what I went through. So I look at it now not as a disadvantage to me, in me, to have watched my mother die. I see it as an advantage. And that's that's because I own it. So the key for me was not, was my mother dying bad? For her, sure, it was bad. For me, of course, it was not to have my mother during all my teen years. That's terrible. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that I can't stop that from happening. That's just real. It's how do I perceive it? How do I respond to that? How does it build into my motivations? And how do I act as a result? Now, the Venn diagram Mike referred to is all four of those blend together and I own it. It's mine. It's me. Now I can do something with it. And it becomes right. an advantage, not a disadvantage. Interesting. So, so you kind of look back at it. You didn't like the experience of seeing your mother die. However, like when you encounter other people who are dying, you're like, I've already experienced this. Yes. So, yes. so, so, I can, so I can be here for other people now. Yes. And I'm not scared of this moment and I don't have to look away. I'm not going to flinch. And when their pastor is not flinching, I don't go dry. I don't have this look of, of concern or terror in my eyes. I'm calm and confident. I'm able to, there are many medical doctors who are afraid of the moment of death. And we call it bedside manner. The reality is they're uncomfortable with that moment, even though they're physicians, they're very uncomfortable with the moment. So what I can do is not only family members, but even healthcare professionals, I can walk them through calmly because, because I have ownership. Now, my mother died from cancer. My father committed suicide six years later. So the, the, the various ways in which life and death occurs have been part of the experience of my journey. So I can either resent that I can see that as something I want to run away from as hard as possible. I never want to talk about it. Or when I take ownership and I embrace the things that have happened in my life, now I'm, I'm a, a different person. In a certain sense, uh, iron by itself is not all that strong. Tin by itself is not all that strong. Melt them together into an alloy and you have steel. And, and steel is incredibly strong. So there's something in 
two weak aspects bonded together that creates a different kind of strength. One of the best examples I use is salt. Sodium is absolutely instantly fatal if it touches the skin of a human being. Chlorine will kill a person if left in the air uh, unattended. Put sodium and chlorine together and you have salt, which is necessary for life. So instead of saying they have to flee or dominate or reject the things that have happened in my life, I can embrace those things and take ownership for them. That's amazing. Uh, you know, I definitely think, um, you know, situations can always be viewed from, from, from three different ways, usually a negative way, a positive way, and a neutral. Yes. Yes, good insight. Um, so, so and the neutral, the neutral can actually be left as it has no effect on me at all. I want to, I'm, I'm by choice an optimistic person. Um, I have lots of reasons to be very pessimistic, but the reality is to choose optimism changes my viewpoint of even terrible things that happen. So instead mm -hmm. of leaving them uh, as as unstatic, a neutral, uncharged particle in my life, I try to take negatives and turn them towards positive because I can work with that better. But that's just my orientation towards uh, how, how life works. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody is different. Like, like for me, I'm neutral pretty much all the time. And I, you know, I think that kind sure. of even helps me be a, a good podcast host because I don't Absolutely necessarily have does. an opinion. You know, I could just be an observer and ask questions and, and, you know, not be affected by it. Which is great for your tagline, a podcast for curious minds and being constantly curious. If you are slanted either to the negative or the positive, it will affect your curiosity. Now you're trying to prove something, but when you're purely curious, it's like, I'm going to observe and see what happens. And I don't have a stake. I don't have an agenda. That's a good, a very good quality for what you're doing. Do, do you think that, you know, this has come up in some of my other podcasts as well, about one of the issues with the scientific method is hypothesizing an outcome and then testing it. By hypothesizing an outcome first affects the method already. It, certainly it does. And, and in science... Because an event is feature of science, it must be repeatable and the outcomes must be obtainable by everyone who conducts those experiments in the same way. So the hypothesis and then the proof of that hypothesis in science is a necessary part, but life doesn't work like that. Yeah. Most <laughs> events in most people's lives are really one-offs. Some guy cuts you off in traffic and you say to yourself in your mind, man, that happens all the time. I hate it. Every afternoon when we're all driving home, people cut me off. It's everyone's doing it. Well, that actually is not true. And the person who cut you off did so in a slightly different way at a different speed with a different car with a different cut than has ever happened before. It is a unique event. We tend to eliminate 
all of its unique features and focus only on one or maybe two unifying features and then we react to the unifying feature. But it really is a one-off. I mean, truly, each event is unique, not scientifically repeatable. And so when somebody says, you know, I wouldn't act that way. If I was driving, I wouldn't act that way. You weren't in my car at that moment in that situation. You didn't see his eyes. You didn't know the weather on and on and on. So it's just like, oh yeah, well, you're different. Yeah. That's something that that I've, I catch myself doing all the time. I'm like, oh, this just happens to me all the time. And like you just mentioned, each situation is unique. How does a person break from that pattern? Well, I think, it, I think it has a lot to do coming back with understanding just how life works. Uh, I, you know, it's interesting. You bring up the scientific method, um, which is really front and center in all of what's going on in our culture right now. I mean, let's face it. Um, the whole COVID thing um, is, is really about science from a medical perspective. And what it seems we have done as a culture since, you know, my world is I'm a sociologist is that we have developed this mindset now that says I have this hypothesis. So now I'm going to go out and find all these social media pieces that fit my hypothesis. And it's like, well, but that's not how this works. (laughs) You know, uh, but we have really bought into that. And so to keep the the pot stirred, I have to find more, if you will, proof texting of my hypothesis because, you know, and then people get stranger and stranger and stranger. But the, the reality is, is that what we're doing is building a, a house of cards that really doesn't make a lot of sense because, again, I think it comes back to the whole aspect of perceptions and how we are perceiving the world and we're understanding that, that, you know, the world, people do not perceive the world like you do. Mike and I have many things that we are very, very, uh, they are very common to us that are, but we have uh, our perceptions of life and of the world and other areas are radically different. But because we're able to come together, what we would say under the area of motivations of understanding our perceptions and our emotions and under motivations where then you start developing the dynamics of, of, this whole thing within the context of what is driving you to move to behaviors to engage or disengage in your behavior, we're able to come to that with a very much openness, even though we both have very strong opinions. Uh, There's no question about that. But at the same time, we come together with a common understanding that we're trying to get to the best possible solution or the best possible answer or the best possible dynamic that's going to work in helping other people because our whole aspect here is helping other people thrive 
at a level of understanding their perceptions, emotions, their motivations, and their behaviors. So we know that. Um, that's a different, I think that's a very different motif than what is happening generally in our culture right now. It, and there's not this deep other orientation mentality that is, is really needing, and I know that's a bad word to use, but that, that dynamic of pushing people to that level of what is best in the orientation of helping those around you. That makes sense. Mike referred to a, he referred to a bad word. And we, we, as, as we have, have worked with so many people over the last uh, 20 years or so, the, there, we've come up with some coded words that we teach people how to hear their own thinking or their own language and be alert to what's going on. One of them right. is we do not use, as much as possible, need, should, ought, or must. <laughs> need, should, ought, or must. Those are words that generate obligation and guilt. Right. They are power words, but they have no real power in them. So if you listen to politicians or preachers or teachers or parents or kind of anybody in authority and listen to how many sentences they say that the main verb is we need to, you have to, we ought to, you gotta, all those kinds of words. That becomes the main sentence, the main verb, which has no real impact in reality. Need, should, ought, or must. One oh. of the questions you asked is, how do you begin to realize when that your situations really are unique? There's another set of words that I teach people, listen for these words in your own conversation. And I call them the ever, never, always words. When a person uses ever, never, or always, they're extremes, they're lying. So I've dealt with a lot of marriage preparation and I've dealt with a lot of divorce preparation in couples that aren't gonna make it. <clears throat> and one of the things that is an interesting uh, reality among couples that are dissolving their marriage or couples, individuals aren't married or breaking up, uh, families that are having a great deal of, of uh, dysfunction right now is the incessant use of so it will be words like everybody, nobody, all the time, you never, you always, and never pick up your clothes. Never. You never pick up your clothes. That has, in the last two, 22 years, you clothing. Well, occasionally okay so when you say they never pick up you're just eliminating anything that doesn't con well but he never does okay but let's come back to real truth here a counter information because you do not want to see it we're not able to have an honest discussion here. Let's barely, almost never 
you, I found last week three pieces of clothing dumped on the floor and that bother that is creating the bother. Well, yeah. And it was like I had just said ever, never. And when you, so when you're driving home and somebody cuts you off, you say, man, everybody always does that. Listen for the, and, and counter your own thinking. That is not true. Actually, everybody is not cutting me off. There are three, 45 minutes of driving. One cut me off. That's not everybody. That's one. <laughs> but we, by using ever, never, always language. So one key that we teach is listen for your own ever, never, always language. Listen. And there's several of those that we have, but those are two really helpful ones right there. Wow. So a lot of it's just linguistics and how we frame things within language. Are you there? I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. Sorry. Okay. You just stop talking. I, <laughs> I, thought, I thought we just lost. Well, we're going in and out here, at least for me. I don't know if anybody else is. But yeah, yeah, a little bit. Okay. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's not only just framing it, it's understanding it yeah, of, of the dynamic of what that's doing to you. I mean, again, it's back to those questions of, you know, what is this doing to me and what am I going to do with it? Uh, what am I going to do about it? So it's, 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 it's really that dynamic that, you know, we really need to, to have the, the commonality of understanding language. Need to. We really do need to, we don't we, We really might. need to do that, and you should and you must and you ought. <laughs> if you would just do what I say, we would be fine, okay? <laughs> you always do that. Every single you're, time you talk. You're right. And they, you're, you're right. I always do, do do that. So <laughs> would you, yeah, I have a need for that. Oh, wrong need. Okay. <laughs> we catch each other on this all the time. We're, we <laughs> listen because we tend to talk and not even hear what our own minds are producing in terms of language. The reality is that most people, not all of them, but most people think by using words. They actually have a conversation going on in their mind. Yeah. And so the way in which an idea is imagined and mulled over and then presented out your mouth is a sequence of words, one right after another, but they tend to come out in a quick stream and not always can we even hear the words we, we actually say. They just stream right out. So somebody else listening to that and jumping on our, on our train and uh, pulling the cars apart, that, that becomes a, you know, I see it as helpful. Some people see that as obtrusive. You know, I didn't even <laughs> realize that I had like this internal dialogue until I started meditating and learned how to take a step back. Yes. Which is learning how to listen, but not to the natural world. It's how to listen to your own mind. Yeah. And just learning how to do that, I was able to recognize some of the, the falsehood, falsehoods that were just going through my head. Sure, absolutely. 
Um, so with this uh, PMB process, like say somebody walks into your office with a particular problem. I don't know what. You can make up whatever analogy you want. How does the whole process fit together? Can you give you like an example of that? Like a, or at least a brief example? Well, I think that the process, I mean, one of the things that Mike and I try to do with folks is, uh, you know, use the word, use the word process. Um, and it's, it's, we try very, we try very hard not to process, if you will, people okay. from that that context because the very thing that happens with folks is if we're trying to get them to understand what is going on in their lives, we have to understand uh, them as people. And so we, we lovingly call uh, this the aspect of peeling the onion. Uh, we, we spend a significant amount of time listening to story in a person's life because you can't really jump off in one spot and or say you start here and then go here and then go here, you know, A, B, C, D, E. Uh, we have to be able to understand story in people's lives and then we are able to come back in what I call uh, connect the dots, begin to connect the dots for people to help them understand the dynamic within the framework of PEMB. Um, I, I th a lot of listening, you know, that the skill of listening to story and the validation of people's story, everyone has a story. They have a life story. Um, and to validate that life story means you have to be willing to give the time to listen. And, but in our context, we always have this model rolling in our head of what is it they're communicating? What part of PEMB are they using at this particular time to communicate their story? Where are the pieces within the story. So we have that whole matrix running through our head as we're listening to him. Again, Mike, as Mike referred to, two or three steps ahead, that's where we're thinking all the time because we're trying to understand where are you in this continuum within this framework. So listening to their story is how you begin to, to put people within the framework of PEMB. Now, that sounds really complicated. It's like, oh, well, I could never do that. The reality is it's not that tough. Uh, once, and we teach people how to have those skills of how to ask questions, how to ask better questions. Um, it's amazing what you can find out if you just take the time to ask really solid questions that keep people moving forward in their story. And actually that's, that's how you begin to help them insert the PEMB model by asking questions and more questions. 
and directing them and connecting those dots. Right. So, so, so you listen to what they say. You, you identify certain parts that you can, can in your model, and then you connect them together. Yeah. So it, we do that. Yes. For, for examples, those. let me jump in, Mike. The, yeah. One of the things very interesting, Gary, as you have been talking, I, I, for me, this is just natural now, that you will pick from your perspective certain kinds of words to describe how you're experiencing even this conversation. When we make a comment, you will say, it sounds like, and then you fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. Um when we were making a, another statement, you say, what I hear you saying is, and then you go on. So you're a very auditory person. Okay. You did not say, even though we're on a podcast with audio only, a very visual person will say, I see what you mean. They'll use that visual word or, you know, I just can't wrap my head around this. I can't wrap my, I can't get my hands on this. They'll use a tactile expression. And that's just natural. So what we do is when we're listening, just listening to people tell random stories from the get-go about what happened to them today, they will choose anger words or they'll choose fear words or they'll choose wound words or they'll choose thrill words. It's very, very interesting. They will usually naturally use their preferred perception words. I see what you mean. I hear you. Uh, you know, I think we can touch on that. Um, that gives me a sense of high five. You know, that's really warm to me that all the words I hear that. I think I know what their primary perception sense is. I know what emotions they tend to be dealing with. And as they say, I'm really having a problem with my daughter or my employee or my boss or my student. And I'll say, well, describe the problem. Just, just give me some random descriptions. And they just pour out, in essence, their perspective in full color to me. And when I start analyzing or helping them understand, they go, are you a mind reader? I mean, how do you come up with this stuff? Yeah. You told me. And, right. and Gary, you told us <laughs> right. by the way in which you choose words. And so I go, I... I can live with that. That's, I'm good with that. And other perceptions that you would say is I can, and phrases they would use because we, you know, we have these five other uh, areas of perception. They might say something that would be, well, I can imagine that. Mm -hmm. uh, or, or. This whole conversation is uh, off balance to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's off balance to me. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It seems like I'm standing on one foot or the other or, uh, man, those memories, I, I, I oh boy, it just takes me right back there. Well, what are they telling you? You know, I mean, they're telling you the very same thing uh, in regards to, you know, to their perceptions. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah, that's that's how it works. Interesting. So, 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 so that's amazing. Like you've identified me as like an auditory type of person. <laughs> Simply by some of the words. Now, I, I say that by way of hunch. Is that true? Is are you uh, actually you know, a highly auditory person? I think so. Yeah, I, I think definitely so. Um, yeah, I'm definitely. A <clears> so to relax, you would rather listen to music than uh, look through a book of art. Right, read a book. 
Um, well, actually, I read. I do read quite a bit. You however, read a lot. however, my passion has always been playing music. I'm a, I'm a musician, yeah. but you know. So. Okay, so here's the question for you: When you read the book, do you hear the sounds that are being described in the book? Absolutely. Yeah, I always hear the. Or do you ver- yes, you verbalize the conversation, and you're reading to yourself in your mind. Right. And when you say, "Hey, that's a good point," I'm going to read that over again. You recite what you just read verbally it's a sound in your yes. head not the words on the page oh yeah that's absolutely yeah. yeah like like the one thing that trips me up is that i come up with the words that i can't pronounce correct when i'm reading yeah you can't hear them right and so I, so if i want you to like me what i will do is i will and <laughs> my conversation with you i will use all auditory based sounds and descriptions and you'll go man we just clicked we were such good friends off the very beginning and i know i'm doing that because you gave me the cue your auditory so i can pick auditory descriptions and that will make much more sense to you than if i use vestibular balance or uh olfactory or, or gustatory what it tastes like you that's like oh, that's nice but you don't click with right. that, but auditory you would. So I understand that. So when I'm talking to a, anybody, a business owner or a staff or a whole room full of people, um, I can use those words and then try a variety of, of sensations. And then various people in the room will say, man, that guy was such a good speaker. I mean, he spoke right to me. I know how to do that. <laughs> it almost sounds a little bit like NLP. It is. Yes. It, it, and I, we've looked at that. It, we're different because that's really a coded system, but it's very much like NLP. Um, interesting. Uh, we're just better than that. <laughs> but, like, like, I don't know. Like, like I've tried using like NLP, but I can't keep that focus. You know, I just, yeah. PEMB like, is I'll, much easier. Like, I'll, I'll talk, I talk to people and I just sort of like, just go wherever it goes, you know? Sure. <laughs> but, but I'm always amazed at, at people that can really, you know, listen to somebody and extract the details from it and then sure. put that into a model like you guys do and, and, and go from there. It's, it's incredible, really. In our thinking of the PEMB system, we have what we call 22 elements. There's only 22. Now, human life is really more complex than 22 elements. But what it, uh, I can't think of 10 million things at once. So, but I can, I can be aware of the 22 elements. 10 senses of perception, five emotional systems, five motivational drivers, and we have way of understanding that, and two behavioral lines. And so those 22 items gives me at least a number of handlebars on this complex bicycle that I can grab this bike from the front, the back, the side, the top, the bottom, and I have some place to hold on. And now as I listen, I can listen very creatively, but also intelligently because I can remember what you talked about and what I talked about relative to which of the 22 elements. And we tend to divert to only a few of those. And so the conversation will be relatively easy for a good listener to be able to 
track and then to recall at a later time. I think one of the things that what we try to do, Mike and I both are intuitive people. When, when we were teenagers growing up, we were the kind of kid that everyone else wanted to unload their problems on because we knew how to listen. We knew how to respond properly. We knew how to say nothing. Uh, and, and people said, man, you, got, you guys just get them. They said it to me, and I think they said it to Mike too. And it would be, you guys really seem to understand. You have this in, intuition about people. So as I sought, I've, I've trained a lot of youth workers and other pastors in, in the kind of ministry work that we do. And the question is, how does a non-intuitive person become intuitive there's a, a lot of folks just throw up their hand and say, if you don't got it, you're never going to get it. But what we've tried to do is teach how intuitive people pick up the cues about others, themselves and others, right. and develop an intuitive sense. That's what we're trying to teach. That's what PEMD right. really is, right. is how exactly. does intuition work? That's exactly right. And, and you can, and even if you just even if you just work through one section, if you will, of it, you're going to be further down the road in being intuitive and understanding people than if you don't ever do anything with it. Uh, people, are, and, and I think there's this sense of, of where people think, well, because I'm not a professional or because I'm not in that job or because that's not the kind of person I am or whatever the reason being that I really can't do that. And I'm like, no, that's not true. I don't, ex I never expect people, I mean, I mean, I'm wired this way. Mike's wired this way. I don't expect people to be wired like that. Right. But I do know that there are pieces of this that you can use that could really help and enhance your life and make your life a lot more enjoyable and to understand life and people around you. That's why we did the book. Why do people act that way? Because people ask that question all the time. I mean, they are asking it wholesale right now in our country because of all the things that are going on. And we're saying, well, there is a way to understand this is what does it do to you? And what are you going to do about it? But here are the pieces that could really help you. And even if you just take one piece and start working with it, it's going to help you. So um, it's, it's not a sense of where we think we've got all the answers by any means. And we don't really come to this with the answers. We come to this with here is a way in which you can just normally in normal life be able to help people around you and for you to understand yourself just a tad bit more that might move you down the road in a little more positive manner. And right so, now, so I it's think almost like you have the questions more than the answers. Like, <laughs> yeah. like what, what are you perceiving? It's like the first question or how you were yeah. perceiving it. Yes. And it's like, how are you experiencing it as an emotion rather than, yep. you know, then like, you know, what is the motivation Yep. So, so it's like you're, you have these questions along these lines with these five different aspects to it. We, we have a question sequence, which is a tool. We actually teach some skill tools uh, in, in training that we do. And one of them is the question sequence. The question sequence is really simple. Ask questions, get answers, 
ask better Better questions. questions. Not just more questions or different questions, but ask a better question. Better question. So the follow-up questions, like like narrowing it down, basically, almost like a little bit of uh, detective work. It can be that. The way I teach um, what a better question is, is if we are discussing a matter, it's like walking around a tree and looking at the bark, the branches, all that kind of stuff. And we go round and round and round by asking questions. A better question is go down into the roots, find out where did this come from, go out to the fruits, where is this naturally going to and what will be its outcome? So if you can go to the roots, go to the fruits, now you can start asking some better questions about what's going on. And I mean, in essence, we flourish it out to a one hour seminar. That's the whole thing. Ask better questions. And I, and I think the problem that you see so many times in the, the dynamic that happens within, if you will, someone trying to help somebody else, whether it's, I mean, I see this all the time and I've seen this for years and years and years in pastoral ministry, in ministry of people, is they're, they're really not asking better questions. They're, they're hearing the, the initial story. And they're sitting there coming up with all of the things, the diagnostics and all the things that they're going to tell you, you, you need, and I'm using that in the very real sense, <laughs> you need to do to, to fix all of this. So it becomes not about the person who's trying to tell you the story. It's about the person who's giving you back the information that really you haven't heard the story at all because you haven't asked better questions. Right. And, um, and you don't have the real information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and I'm amazed. Uh, I'm just, and I shouldn't be, but I continue to just be amazed when I have discussions. I, I work with a lot of 20 something young men. That's just kind of one of the things I'm doing right now in my life because these guys needs need, if you will, they're, they are in a place in life that has very little support structures. And 20-something guys right now are some of the highest risk for suicide in our country. And it's amazing to me how many of these guys have sat down and talked to someone, if you will, an older person, a mentor, or someone, and they've never been heard. Um, they say, well, I've started to tell them, but I never got very far. Uh, well, what were you doing? Well, they were always telling me what I, what I quote unquote needed to do to fix my problem after they listened for, you know, 90 seconds. I'm going, Oh, that's fascinating. So tell me more. (laughs) So need should ought and must going back to that list. Need should ought and must and supposed to have to gotta, I mean, there's a whole bunch of words that go there, right? But need should ought and must are driven by an agenda on the part of the speaker. And, right. and, and one of the key breakdowns that we find across all the spectra that we work in is that an individual driven by an agenda stops listening to everyone else. Right. And every, I'm using that word very selectively, they stop listening to everyone else because the agenda is now driving their, their life and, and that's where the difficulty comes. So when you have a 20-something, as Mike referred to, even with their own family, and the family says, you know, you need to get married. You know, you really should uh, get your own car. What, what you ought to do is get a better job. On and on and on, need, should, ought, and must. And the, the reality is, say anything you want. 
I'm not going to change my opinion because I know what you need should ought to must do. And now the agenda has driven over whatever it is that you're going to say. So I'm already prepared with my answer, right. regardless of what you say. What it means is you're not necessary in the conversation. Right. And that's where the breakdown occurs. Right. And, and that's like we were talking about the scientific method of starting off the hypothesis that's going right. to try to send things in a specific direction. Right. It's like right. people having a conversation huh. with, with already knowing what they're going to suggest at the end. Right. right. And one of the things we found, this was real fascinating, Mike and I, we were on a college campus uh, a year ago, actually, uh, almost. And, and one of the things that I pretty much always do when I'm in those kinds of settings, I, I'm going to eat in the, the commons. I want, to, I want to hang out where the students are because we were speaking to students, I wanted to interact with them. And, and uh, Mike was holding court, so I left and uh, went and sat with a group of, of young uh, black men who are basketball players and, um, and started interacting with them. And that whole thing is exactly what happened. They... When I first sat down, they were, were like, uh, what do you want? You know, <laughs> and, and it was, I don't want anything. Uh, I just, hey. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I want story. I want, to, I, want, I want to know what life is like here on the campus, what life is like for you here on the campus. Uh, what does that look like? Uh, who are you? Where did you come from? I mean, all those What's driving you? Why, why this place? I mean, all, I mean, thousand questions in, in my mind. And as we started talking, eventually Mike joined me and he sat down with, with us in which I knew he would pick up on it the moment he sat down is that the walls had started to come down. There was a sense of where they were realizing you guys really want to hear our story. You want to know. And they kept waiting for answers. And it wasn't, no, this is not about answers. This is about understanding the dynamic of who you are, what's going on, and where can we fit into this process to maybe facilitate a better community for you all as we grow together but though it was all of a sudden they, and they said that, I mean, they plain said that we've never talked to anybody like you guys. This is, this is crazy. Do you guys do this all the time? <laughs> like, like, one of the things, one yeah. of the things that was pretty interesting about that whole, that whole college experience we had is a small town in Kansas that we were at and the people of what we called the resident culture on that campus where people from that small town, they live there, they've been there for anywhere from a few years to decades and decades. Their perception of small town Kansas was it is extremely safe and this is a very friendly town. The basketball players that we sat down with, they happened to be the five or six guys we were talking to were African-American kids and they were from major cities uh, like Atlanta, Atlanta Houston, um, yeah. Houston, Chicago. I mean, they were from Fort LA. Yeah. yeah, they were from big, big cities. 
And as they talked, when we didn't have a great agenda, we called them the migratory culture. They come in, they go out, they go home for Thanksgiving, they come back, they migrate in and out of that little town, go back to the big city. And so we asked them, what's your perception of this town here in Kansas? And they said, this is a scary town. This is, man, we're, we don't walk around here. This is, we're, we're really nervous. And we said, and that was not at all like what we heard from the faculty. The faculty were saying, oh, this is a great time. It's really, really safe. So we said, uh, we didn't say, you know, you shouldn't be afraid or you need to. We didn't say that. We said, why are you afraid? And one kid said, in my city, when the cops go down the street and turn off their lights and siren, it is bad news you get to a safe place as fast as you can because something's going down. So we bounced that off faculty and we said, uh, the thought was when police go down the street and they turn off their lights and siren, something really bad is going to happen. And they said, oh, not here. When they go down the street after eight o'clock at night, they know that uh, this young mom just had a baby and they don't want to wake her up. So they turn off their lights and siren so they don't wake the baby up when they're driving down the street. Two entirely, completely different worldviews of policemen who turn their siren and lights off. One is, what a safe place to live. And what a terrifying place to live. And we were trying to get them to dialogue about that difference. And that was where it became extremely difficult to create dialogue when the two sets of worldviews were so completely different. It was very, very interesting to us. So we sat down with these students without an agenda and we just listened. And that was something they had not experienced before. So, so definitely the, 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 it seems like the first step is, is to enter a conversation without any pre pre bias or prejudice. Hopefully everybody's got bias. Can we recognize right. our own bias? Exactly. And, I mean, we have Mike and I have bias about the Gulf coast States. I mean, as soon as we heard you from the Gulf <laughs> coast, like, Oh yeah. All right. right. When's he going to be Soft saying y'all? Crab, man. Come on. Who, who's that <laughs> well, I, I actually, actually like, like that's one of the funny things. And I was going to bring this up since you mentioned it. And I was debating in my mind whether to bring this up or not. But when I lived like in New Jersey up North, um, I was very, very good at reading people. You know, I, I, I can, you know, take a group of people and figure out, you know, who's who, what categories they fit in and stuff like that and how they're going to respond to certain, you know, things that I say. Then I moved down here and that's all completely out the window. <laughs> like <laughs> I can I, I, I no longer read, the, read the people that are in front of me because like, the culture is so different. The race is completely different. different and, and and I've, I've completely, like, now I'm at a disadvantage. Yes. Well, but it also can be to your advantage because if you turn it into, I have to listen harder than I did before because I understood all the cultural cues, but now I've got to learn the cultural cues. I have to listen faster than I listened before. That will be an actual advantage to you, not a disadvantage. Did you actually say have to? I did not play the tape backwards. I did not say that. <laughs> I never say that. You always bring that up. <laughs> you guys are funny. 
<laughs> so, so the other I, thing, I, other thing I was thinking about, and, and I don't even know if this is relevant or not, but I, I think it was like in the everything's mid, relevant in the mid '80s. I remember like the first time I went to see like a, um, I don't know, a therapist, shrink, whatever. You know, you, you go in there and you have this picture on the wall of all the like the happy face, the sad face, you know, all, <laughs> right. all these faces. You know, like, oh, well, which one are you? The 24 faces, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, it, is that even still something that's used or, or you know, or like, like your, we don't use your, it. your, your no. method seems like a lot more precise than having a picture of people's faces on a wall. <laughs> the challenge for that is, uh, and particularly when you referred to back in the eighties, um, some of the aspects of, of the science of the mind has really been developing significantly in the last 40 yes, years. Huge. When you go yes, back yes. to the 1700s, 1800s, and all the great psychologists, what they did was they developed a theory, they worked the theory, and then they had adherence. And what people have not generally done when they adopt Freudianism or Rogerian or Anderson or one of the other major views is they, they may tweak and adjust slightly, but they've stopped thinking about a creative way of looking at it. What we've done is we've said, those are good. I, I have no complaint, but that, but we don't see life in those terms. Right. So what we tried to do was create an entirely different approach that is instead of being isolated to one or two or three major lines what we've done is the PEMB, the four complexes, allows us to move pretty freely from one area to another because they're really interactive. Yeah. So a person can be talking about their behavior, we can move right over to their emotion and then back up to their motivation mm -hmm. and jump over to their perceptions um, fairly easily because we know where we're going when we do that. Uh, but it really has to do with having a a broad base and then allowing a person to be authentic and which is very hard in our culture uh, because we're so concerned that the agenda of others is going to drive over our mm -hmm. authenticity and leave right. tire treads all right. over it. So right. that becomes how do you help a person? And that takes some time. I mean, that's just not yeah. going to happen instantaneously, but it's going to take some time. And I think that whole issue of authenticity is, is so primary in uh, particularly, I, I, I particularly, I would say in the millennial generation and in, in generation Z that that dynamic is they are not willing to allow for there not to be authenticity in you know in generation x and boomer generation traditional generation it's it's that whole thing of where we know people are being authentic and okay whatever but the millennial and gen z generation they're not willing just to turn a kind of wink wink and let that go by and so there well becomes, some are there's a lot that are generally not, but there's a lot of people that yeah, have learned to play the game. They yeah, but I think that's that's the major struggle inside, sure. is that they are they they are on they want to be an authentic generation, and so that brings about 
a dynamic that is fascinating when you start having these conversations. Sure. Um, so they're, it, less, they're really less likely to conform? Yes, and yet at the same time, they struggle greatly of being the social media generation that is conforming all over the place to something that's not real. So there's a, there's a dichotomy that's taking place that's just uh, almost insane. I mean, and it really it, isn't either or. It's really both and. The, the human being is complex in our desire to be individuals, but our individual, individuality has to line up with the conformity to others. You very rarely will find someone who truly is an outlier on everything. They're just completely mm -hmm. independent. So there will be uh, a, a unique way of dressing that fits the dress code. And at kids, and I own a school in Honduras and everybody wears a uniform. I've suggested that up here and people say, there's no way I'm wearing a uniform. Absolutely no way. But you see, the girls are all wearing the same kind of clothes. The guys are all wearing the same kind of clothes. The right. girls have their hair done the same way. The guys, look, I mean, it's like, but you already wear a uniform. They just happen to be distressed jeans and uh, plaid t-shirts or, I mean, come on. In the 70s, we wore bell bottoms and paisley. It was a uniform. Everyone, your, your paisley might have been a little different than mine, but we both wore paisley because that was the uniform of the day. So you have people who have that sense of that that <laughs> inner propulsion to be unique as long as it fits in you know, how can you be both well I was, I was it's wonderful really well to be human i was doing really well until he said paisley i i, I love erad paisley i eradicated that from my life because that was so disgusting Why? and now you're bringing no. it back up today what is this it's like, coming back you, i think it's that's gonna be old people's spring. stuff i mean call <laughs> <laughs> You know what I saw <laughs> today online? I was looking and I saw a, pit, uh, a website that was selling harem pants, like these <laughs> big <laughs> balloony, yeah, it, <laughs> crazy looking oh, pants. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Well, you can get yeah, Nehru yeah. jackets, <laughs> Nehru jackets, and puffy sleeves. I mean, come oh, on. oh, <laughs> yeah. What's what were those t-shirts? Those. Uh, the ones that had all the multiple colors on them. Oh, tie dye. Tie -dye. Oh yeah, tie dye. Here we go. We do yeah. tie dye all the time with our nursery oh, school kids. They love tie dye. Yeah, that's because you're in New York, upstate New York. That's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> you think you have mountains too, but that's all right. <laughs> uh, they, they do wear a lot of tie dye in upstate. <laughs> You can have it. That's where I live. I, 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 I fit in a few uh, retreats up there, and definitely a lot of hippies. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that would be north, northeast Washington. So <laughs> we have ours. Awesome. Well, so so well, if my listeners want to find you guys, how can they reach out to you? The book is available on Amazon. Uh, we have a print-on-demand, we have uh, ebook, and we also have an Audible, so they can get it through Amazon. We have a website uh, that's the letters of the book, Why Do People Act That Way, WDPATW. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there. Uh, we come in and do training. We do virtual stuff. We do on-site. <laughs> Eventually, the world will become normal again. Uh, and we can do, I've, I've done some smaller groups uh, in September and October. 
face to face. So we can, we know how to be safe. We can do that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Mike and I love to train together and, uh, and, and that's frequently possible, but not always possible. Right. So we can come individually, but it's much better when we're a team, uh, kind of like Laurel and Hardy or the Smothers brothers. <laughs> Those are both really old. Anybody new? I don't know anybody. No. Anyway, we're no going Mike and Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, we we prefer to be able to do it together. I mean, it it, it just makes for a better. Time sure, and then we have to others. talk only half as much and get paid twice as much. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, kind of, but not sort of. <laughs> so, so, so if you want, you guys can email me those links, and I'll post them in the note of this episode. That'd be great. I would love that. Loop. We will like do I don't that. have them here, so okay. I'm just going through it. All right, all right. Uh, uh, thank you for coming on, <laughs> Gary. It's been a lot of fun. Been a lot of fun, bud. Yeah, thank it was you. very interesting. Well, good. I hope it helps. And I hope it helps somebody. I hope so too. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.